Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. Uh, We started before the baptisms on a book uh, in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. And um, this is, it's not a large book, It's it's three chapters. Um, and it's very unusual, so it's, it's from a prophet that's not very well known in the, in the sense of we don't know a lot about this man. And all that we do really know about him, outside of he was a prophet of the Lord, is from other texts. So whether it be rabbinical text um, or some other writings um, that would happen later on. And so we really don't know. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a guessing game there. But what we recognize is, is that this book isn't about Habakkuk. It's what Habakkuk has to say to and about God. And so our first week when we spoke on, we talked about um, unusual prayer and unusual response, right? Uh, if you start and you read Habakkuk from the beginning, the beginning of it is just a bunch of complaints. And some of them are probably familiar. I know for me, I read it and I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've felt this way before. I've, I've felt frustrated by God. I have felt left and, and, and abandoned by God before. And, and Habakkuk here is this holy man. We presume a priest who's just pouring his heart out. His, and it's not, you know, in, a, in the typical fashion of, oh, you know, of the, it's, it's truly a lament. It's, it's God, I, where are you? Where are you? There's horrible, unrighteous men ruling, doing horrible and unrighteous things, and they're in your name. Where are you? And then we see God's response, which is equally as unusual as the first prayer. And God's response is basically, well, you know, there's these terrible, terrible people, these, Chalde- these Chaldeans that we're going to use. And um, they're, they're terrible. You know they're terrible. I know they, like, put people on stakes. Um, they're notorious for how violent and aggressive they are. And I'm just, I'm going to, they're going to ransack you. I'm going to use them like a rod. And I'm going to discipline these unrighteous people. And Habakkuk's response that we went into on the second week was about prayer of expectation. His response to God is so intriguing because it looks like a complaint and it's even been treated that way and some of the uh, apostolic fathers would look at it and go, oh, we're not even sure if you know, Habakkuk's even saved here. I mean, how dare he question God? But what we recognize is, one, there was a reverence there. There was a pattern of prayer similar to what we've learned from Christ, right? And the Christ who gave us the, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer there's a reverence that he starts off with. It's like, you are so holy. How can you use these unrighteous people? You can't even look on evil. You are ancient of days, and yet here we are dying. He's pouring out his heart, not out of irreverence, not out of doubt, but much like all of us, he just didn't have perception. But he continued to pray, and we talked about the need for expectation in our prayer. Do we expect God to hear us, to respond to us? to move about us, and to stir inside of us. Now this week, we come up to God's final response. This is God's final response. And this will begin in chapter 2, if you are eager to turn there. But 
what we're going to be looking at is the reality that in the midst of all of our chaos, in the midst of all of the disorder and the failures and the falters, God is still on the throne. He's on the throne. And this is incredibly important because at that time, there were wicked men on the throne in Jerusalem. There were wicked men on a throne coming to conquer them in the Chaldeans. And there would be continuous rows of prophetic teachings about the Babylonians and the Assyrians who would be coming and being on the throne. But it was a reminder that in the midst of all of those earthly thrones, there would be one God on his throne, and he had not vacated it. And that's where we're going to start off today. I'm going to have Brother Mark come down. He's going to read chapters uh, 2, and he's going to start in verse 2 and go all the way to the end of 20. So it's a long read. Hang in there with us. There's a lot that God has to say, apparently, in this particular passage. Uh, and then we'll dive right into it. The Lord God answered me. Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoil for them, since you have plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain will plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. It is not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory and the water comes the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or the mute, or the mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. The word of God. 
How's your inner voice? Now, this random, very abrupt thing, but how is your inner voice? Right, that little voice in the back of your head that um, maybe you hear it in the wee hours of the morning before you get your face on, if you will, before you kind of wake up and get adjusted. How's that inner voice doing? You know? Is, uh, is your voice encouraging? Is it a source of motivation? Or is it like a lot of us, is that voice a liar? Is it constantly telling you about how unworthy you are and maybe how alone you are or how you're abandoned or how little you matter or how much you fail? How's your inner voice? It's in our lowest moments, uh, our darkest kind of places, where it can be really tempting to start believing those lies, right? I always point to people to be reminded that when we know Satan tempted Jesus, when it was written down and expressed, it was at his lowest moment. It wasn't the first day of the wilderness. It was 40 days in when he was really hungry, really tired, reached as close as he was going to get to breaking, right? And that's how Satan works. He doesn't attack us in our strengths. He finds our weakness. He pokes and he prods. He lies. And it can be tempting to hear these lies. It can be tempting to grab hold of them. And that's, in some sense, what Habakkuk is really wrestling with. He knows what God's truth is. He tells us what God's truth is. And if you read the last part of Habakkuk 1, what we preached about before, he fully understood God's glory. He knew God couldn't look onto evil. He understood that God was always faithful and always present. But he couldn't wrap his head around why he felt that way. And in the back of his mind, he heard the same old lie, the same lie that we hear today. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Did he really love you? Did he really promise he would never fail? What's good is when God speaks, we can trust that. And we have a passage here where God speaks exactly to some of those issues. So we're going to look first at verse 2 and 3. And I want to just point out a couple of things. Uh, some of these are important, some of them not. Now, just a heads up, and we've covered this really briefly in the first chapter, but one of the interesting things about Habakkuk which I know most of you are probably used to saying Habakkuk, like me, and I just say it all weird and southernly, um, um, but Habakkuk, if you will. There's actually a lot of translational issues that we have to wrestle through in Habakkuk. It's not that we don't have the right translation. The, the question is, what do these words really mean in Hebrew? And what do these phrases really mean in Hebrew? That's what we're wrestling with. And so there'll be some things in here where if you have an ESV or you have a King James, it may say something different. And I'll do my best to cover it as I can. But don't freak out if it does. Because the same word is still there in Hebrew. We're just all trying to figure out how does that mean something to me in English. And we can really come back to that and reread it. And there's lots of really good papers on this if you want to go read them. But I'm going to do my best to help you through it. So as we read chapter or verse 2 it says the lord answered me write down this vision and clearly inscribe it on the tablets so one may easily read it now there's almost a guarantee if you have a king james it doesn't say that don't don't worry so we're going to talk about some things that are really important in this one uh the word for vision is actually hazon um and it's not 
like what we typically think of a vision, right? Like when I think of a vision, there's really only two routes. One of them is like the old school revelation, like you see things, God's like manifesting a whole virtual vision kind of thing. It might even be an experience, or it might be like a physical manifestation, right? Like I'm seeing like Paul um, in Damascus kind of thing, you know? Uh, But in this case, and how it was often referred to in the Old Testament, it's not a phys- like a visual manifestation. It's his word. God is giving you his word. He is telling you about what's going to happen. Keep in mind, his first response was the Chaldeans are going to come and destroy you. They're going to oppress you. They're going to make you their captive. That's happening. And so the Lord prompts Habakkuk, write this down. Write this down. And he's to write it down clearly. So write the Lord of the Word, God's Word, write it down clearly so that it can be easily read. Now, mind you, this is where some things get weird because there are several translations that are different. Some of them read easily read. Some of them can say someone running by can read them. Um, what we have here, in fact, it says he who runs can read it. That would be the translation that we often see maybe that's how what yours says but what we have figured is we've looked and we've studied and i say we like lots of people have studied all kinds of transcripts not just biblical but also ancient writings by the hebrews or uh, by the israelites at that time by other um other nations at that time and this idea of runs to we've also noticed shows up somewhere else it shows up in Proverbs 18.10. It says, so uh, he who reads God's word adheres to his commands and find refuge and comfort there. He runs to God's word. And it's the same idea, same concept, same structure, sentence-wise. You know, and there's a recognition there that that's where he would run to. Habakkuk's being told, write down what I've told you because these are my words. I want you to write them down so that people can find refuge there. They can hide there. They can find comfort in my words. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find much comfort in knowing that a horrible, terrible, violent nation is going to attack me. Uh, and, and I'm supposed to take comfort in that. I find that very off-putting. Right? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? But what's good is that God doesn't, God doesn't forsake us even in moments where we feel forsaken. God's not going to leave us when we feel abandoned. He's still there. And he's telling them, yes, judgment's coming. This is not a, a prophecy of you know, an escape, if you will, a salvation from a judgment. But he promises that this will not be the final judgment. This will not be forever. This, will be ne- this won't be never-ending. Your oppression will not last forever. He continues to preach through, uh, continues through in verse 3. Hold up. Well, it closed down. We'll keep going. And it speaks to the idea of this vision will not be late, that it will not delay. And as it speaks to this, one of the things that is interesting is that it, it bounces back and forth because it says on one hand that it won't delay, but if it delays, wait for it which seems so counterproductive here. Like I'm, it's almost like, is this a play on words? But there's a recognition here. If, 
I don't know about if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this in my life, that my timing and God's timing are not the same. My timing is certainly something more immediate. I want it to happen yesterday, right? Like, I don't know about you, but anytime I've prayed, especially those prayers of desperation, you're like, God, like, you know, any moment now would be great. Maybe you're praying about, uh, or maybe you remember a time where you were praying about an answer about a job, right? Or a life change that you're trying to enact, and you're like, all right, God, I need you to, to step in and give me some direction. Give me some discernment. And it feels like you don't hear anything. You're like, all right, like any day now, like this would be great at any moment. But the reality is, is that though it may feel delayed, maybe God's response doesn't come as immediate as we want. It's still coming. It's still coming. And we're called to wait for it. We're called to show patience in the Lord because his timing is the right timing. That's a hard wrestle for us, especially because we, we almost idolize, in some sense, our desire to be in control. And oftentimes what Habakkuk's been accused of, and maybe rightly so, I'm not sure, I'm still wrestling with that myself, was that he was idolizing his own self. How can one tell God that he's not doing what he's supposed to do? How can one tell God that his plans aren't the right plans without idolizing yourself some? But what we do know is in spite of all that, God speaks to Habakkuk and he reminds him of what his task is as his son. He reminds him of what he's called to be and what he's called to do. Verse 4, he continues, and there's a comparison that begins to be made. And this is where we really start hitting what this passage is really about. There's a, a wonderful comparison. And we're going to start almost backwards, in a sense, if you will. Um, verse 4 says, look, his ego is inflated, and he is without integrity. And this he that they're referring to is the Chaldeans, and, and specifically, most likely, the king of the Chaldeans. He says, his ego is inflated, and he is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. The unrighteous will be egotistical. They'll be without integrity. And in fact, what we're going to see and what we've read is the remainder of the book is a description of unrighteous people. The remainder of the book is essentially God pointing out, hey, here are the things that are unrighteous. In fact, if, what's interesting is, is the second half of that verse, right? He who is righteous, or, but the righteous one will live by his faith Many scholars have believed that's all of the Ten Commandments condensed into one little verse. Half a verse, really. It's all the commandments. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Now, there's a bunch of arguments about that. We'll talk about it at the end. Because I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be unrighteous? What does it mean to live unrighteous? And why did God spend five full stanzas talking about it? He spent the remainder of this chapter pointing out things to be aware of, pointing out sins people fall into, and specifically pointing out the sins not only of the Chaldeans, but also of those Jews who that Habakkuk began his complaints with. And I think it's good for us, one, we need to see these things and see what they are and see what God's telling us. Because it's important that you understand this. At the end of the day, um, what good is a sermon if you've heard it here but you can't live it out there? Right? 
What good is a worship song that you can sing in here, but you can't sing out there? That's, in our culture, the greatest tragedy that's happening. There are more people lost in the pews most Sundays than there will be out in the world. Now, that might be slightly changing, but it's still a concern. It's still a problem. And we're still pushing toward that. How, what do we need to do? How do we need to live our life in a way that's righteous? So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the woes, if you will. And this goes on for quite a bit. It actually goes from verse 6 to verse 19. covers all the woes. There's five of them specifically. And they talk about some very interesting things because on one, there's a surface level that's addressed. But then there's this really interesting sub-level that's really relating almost all the way back to the Ten Commandments. And I think it's good for us just to be reminded, man, these are things, these are pitfalls that we can all fall into. God's not just warning the Chaldeans in some sense. He's not just agreeing with Habakkuk. He's telling Habakkuk, hey, you need to share this. Remember, what did he tell them to do? Write it down what? Clearly, right? Write it down where they can see. Because it wasn't, this isn't going to the Chaldeans. Like this isn't like Paul who wrote an epistle This is a Habakkuk's epistle to the Chaldeans. This is Habakkuk writing down what God has said to give to the Israelites because there are Israelites living unrighteously. There are God's people living unlike God has called them to live. That's where we take this and can apply it. We don't want to fall into these categories. The first one it starts off with is, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. Here we go. Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with the goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise? And those who disturb you wake up? For you will become spoil for them. Now at first, this looks like a straightforward, simple thing, right? Um, Don't steal. But it's more than that. If you pay attention there, it's not just stealing. Um, One, it starts with envy, right? That's what... Thievery and stealing kind of start with, you have something, I want it, I'm going to take it. I want it bad enough that I will violate my own moral obligations to steal from you so that I have the thing you have. But it talks about more than that. It actually talks about being a creditor, right, and hoarding up these possessions. It's funny because Jesus talks about the same thing in the Gospels. He says, you know, if someone asks you for money, just give it to them. Don't expect a loan. Don't take, you know what I mean? Like it, it, and that's a hard reference for us because like that, that challenges us. Because I don't know about many of you, I don't walk around with pockets full of cash, so me donating something to somebody is a big deal. I have to calculate that in. But there's a reality there that God's calling his people even from the Old Testament. That we're supposed to live in a certain kind of way. We're supposed to live in a way that One, we don't lust after something that's not ours, right? We don't envy after our neighbors who have things to the point where we steal them. But two, we don't manipulate them to get what we want. See, that's where where our our evil nature, like the part of us that's broken, is so good at justifying things that are still what they are. We can steal from someone, do it legally, and be like, well, you know, I did it legally. I stole, but I mean, I didn't steal. I just bent the law a little bit. I took advantage of a situation. And those are the moments that are tempted. Most of us don't get an urge when we walk into a store to just pour everything into a duffel bag and walk out. Like that's not our general desire, right? But all of us can be tempted 
to take advantage of a situation that's going to hurt someone else. Because we can justify it. We can go, well, it's not terrible. It's not illegal. Right? Like, I'm not worried about those people. I've got to provide for myself. I've got to provide for my people. Right? That's a hard way. That's a, that's a hard thing to live to. That's a hard thing to, to really truly live up to. The second woe says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house and places his nest on high, forsaking others. Mine says, To escape the grasp of disaster. What's interesting is this one essentially starts off kind of the same, right? Like, we're all like, oh, dishonest wealth. Okay, we get that. That makes sense. That's stealing, right? Like, in some sense or another, it's kind of similar to the crediting thing. But note what he, he continues. God didn't just stop there. He goes, and sets aside things and placed on his, his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. What this really comes down to is just a disconcern for those around us, our neighbor. Right? Christ boiled us down to two things. Right? The whole law was two things. Love God. Right? And then love your neighbor as yourself. And this speaks right to that. This is exactly what that says. We can get so infatuated, we can idolize safety and comfort so much, which aren't bad. Right? There's, that's not a bad thing to desire. Safety, comfort, those aren't bad. But anything that replaces God on the throne, anything, that's heresy. That's idolatry. It's tempting for us to want to gather all of our things, close our ears, cover our eyes, and walk around like there's not hurt and pain all around us. It's tempting. It's tempting. We could just, if I focus on my, I'm just, I've got to get my kids through school. I'm going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus about the rest of this. This is too much. I've got to focus on that. They get through school. I've got to focus on retirement. I've got to get to retirement so I can live a, a happy life and it won't be a burden, right? Those are the things we tell ourselves. And then we get to retirement, what is it? Well, I've got to keep my health up, right? Like I can't do crazy stuff. I've got to take care of my health. And then we get to the end of our lives and we're left holding the bag. And what do we really accomplish? That, that's the hard part. I, I, as I read through the Gospels and, and you read where God's commanded us to take care of orphans, widows, those who have been forsaken and forgotten by society. There's a reality that oftentimes it's going to come at a cost. Sometimes it's monetary. That's always the easy one to point to, right? Because we have a bank account that counts all the money and we can point to it and go, that's a thing. But there's also a reality of the resource of our time, our emotional resources, Man, I'll tell you what, that's the one that, that'll get you. It's hard to invest in people. It's costly to spend time with people because we get engaged with them, we get involved with them, and then all of a sudden their hurts are our hurts. Their brokenness is our brokenness. Their burdens become our burdens, which if I remember correctly, God said something about we should bear one another's burdens. There's a reality there that we're called to this. And woe to those who don't. The third woe, which by the way, this has got to be like a, a cool TikTok or something, right? Like at some point, whoa, I'll send it to Will. 
Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Right? And founds a town on injustice. I can actually show you where this one is. Hold on. There we go. Go to 12. Is it not the Lord of armies that the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? This one is obviously pointing directly at the Chaldeans because they, we just spent two chapters, well, chapter and a half, talking about how terrible, how good they are at killing, like their whole technology system, like they just basically made a war machine and are chewing through the land. God's like, whoa on that. But at the end of the day, the thing that drives that is the same thing that drives us, right? It's anger. It's anger. It's hatred. That's what drives it. Woe to him who's angry. Sure, maybe we're not destroying cities. Maybe we're not, but every time a Christian, a good Christian man, loses his absolute mind in an anger-fueled rage in his household, he's burning God's kingdom down in his children's heart. That one hurts. I'll be the first one to tell you that one hurts. I grew up, my dad was... Very much a, an angry man trying to deal with motions that he probably didn't understand quite as well as he should have. And guess what? The sins of the father, right? So most of my life, I have wrestled with anger. Short fuse. I get frustrated. And I say things that are hurtful. I used to throw things into the wall and put big holes in the wall. I had to patch them up. That's fun. I learned not to do that. That's, that's always thank the Lord and the Holy Spirit for continuing to work that way. But there's a reality there that in the back of my mind, behind my lips is always just a hint that wants to leak out and burn some more things down. And it's so easy for me just to go there. And it takes so much. It takes so much of my own effort to not do that. And then I fail because I realize it's not my own effort. Only God, only the Holy Spirit can do that. It's kind of hard to be hateful if you're filled with God's love. You know what I mean? It gets, it, and the more you fill yourself with God's love, the less you can be hateful. But if we don't stay close to God, that river of anger is right there coming. It's, it's encroaching on us all the time. It's coming, and it is going to burn down everything it touches. It may not be a physical city that we're worried about, but we're tearing down God's kingdom because of a poor witness that we have for ourselves. And it can be overwhelming. And it's something so simple. And we, try, we can justify it, right? Like, I had, a, I had a long day. I didn't sleep good last night. I'm hangry. Hangry's a real one, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a real one. We'll go. But really what it comes down to is that's our natural broken state. And when we're not attached to the vine properly, when God's love's not pouring into us regularly through his word, through his spirit, through his people, man, it just, it's so easy. So easy to be that. It's like our natural setting. Our fourth woe. Woe to him who gives his neighbor drink. I will eventually get this one to you. This one was a tough one. I'm not going to lie to you. I spent many a minute trying to figure out what in the good Lord was saying? Because on the surface, it looks really plain. It looks like lust, right? He says, so you can see their nakedness. And we all know nakedness in the Bible is not good, right? 
When Moses' the son Ham saw him naked and saw him in his nakedness, he got banished, right? When Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, they got kicked out of Eden. So nakedness has got some pretty big connotations. And plus, let's be honest with you, most of us have that terrifying dream when we were a kid where you'd show up to school naked and you're like, that's not good. I don't know. I didn't have that dream, but I heard people have it. It's weird. But hey, you know, we all got terrifying dreams. But there's a reality that goes a little deeper than that. In some sense, it is that, right? It's giving into your lust. But he also mentioned something else. One, he mentioned uncircumcision. Now, uncircumcision is a little different, right? He says, you get drunk too, and you reveal your uncircumcision. Now, immediately that says, well, that feels like nakedness too, right? But remember this, when God, when Moses was talking to the Israelites, and they were angry against God, and they were furious with God, and Moses says, you and your uncircumcised heart. There's a reality there that we need to pay attention to. There's a hardening of some of our hearts, right? Uh, a lack of receptivity that we need, and a lack of, of, in some sense, humility that we need. Because at the end of that comes something else. The other thing that will get you that got me thinking about and I began addressing is the reality that it says you would be filled with disgrace instead of glory. And it began to click. This is about pride. This is about pride. There is nothing more we want than God's glory. That's what, that is essentially the, 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 the essence of all sin. We want to steal God's glory. We want his throne. We want his control. We want to be able to make decisions. We don't want to be humble. We want to be God. It, in some sense, at the end of the day, it boils down to we're so much more like Lucifer than we are like Jesus. We're so tempted to look at how beautiful and good we are. We have a culture that literally says to everybody how good you are. You're so good. Oh, don't worry about it. You're good. You, gotta be, you, know, you want to be the best version of you. And here it says, woe to them. Woe to them that gives themselves the glory. Because you're going to be filled with disgrace instead. And I would encourage you to think about that. Like, where in your life are you stealing glory from God? It's so easy, right? Like, it just is. The way we think, the way we act. It, even something as simple as worship leading. We talk about this all the time. It's so easy for this to be up here. For, for someone like me to stand right here and take all the credit, all the glory for me, right? It's right there. People pat you on the back, tell you how good you are. Woe to those who steal God's glory. And he finishes his last one. Woe to him who worship false idols. Man, this one nails it, right? Like it's like, gotcha. Don't worship wood. Totem poles are out. Don't get you a little statue. Buddhas are bad. We got it. But there's a reality there that we miss too. How many things do we let in our life take his throne? Right? Like we live in a different culture. No one here is, well, I say no one. Most people are not going out stacking rocks on top of each other going, look, I have made the gods. You know? We've not done that. But what we have done 
is we have let other things possess us. Whether it be our phone, oh, I got a notification, I got to go right now. But you're reading God's Word, the, the notifications, right there, right now. One just came up, as I said that, Satan, you know what I mean? Evil stuff that distracts us. Why? Because they're more important. We make them more important. That's what the throne's about. What is important? I'm tired, right? I've got to go do this. I've got all these things, all these activities. All these activities. I've got all these other things that will pull from what God is supposed to be in my life because I've built around and hidden him from his own throne. Idolatry isn't like it used to be, but at the same time, notice what he says about it. It's like, you know, um, can a mute stone come to life? Can it teach? Look, it's made of gold and silver, but it can't even, it, it, there's no breath in it. There's no life in it. But I promise you this, if you put God on his throne, you put his word in front of you, there's life there. I've read countless chapters over and over again, found something different every time. It's so baffling to me. Like, I've read this before, and yet here's something new that God's bringing to me because his word is living. It's wonderful. It's a reminder. Woe to all these things. But here's the good news, and I'm going to wrap it up because I'm over, and I need to. If we go back to that first four, and I would change it, but I can't, so we're just going to hang in there. But if we go back to that verse four, it says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. What does it mean to live by your faith? We have a lot of examples of what it means not to. But if we turn those things inversely, we can see what the difference is, right? Like if we flip those things around, we can see. Instead of amassing wealth unjustly, we trust in God for provisions. There's a way to live by faith. Now, that's hard to do when you don't have a lot. It's easy for me to stand here being fairly comfortable in an air-conditioned room and going, oh, well, God, I'll just give it to you. It'll be okay. I recognize that. I know that that's a hard line for me. But I've also been there. I've been where we didn't have a lot. And I've been there when the check, uh, we needed something miraculous, uh, miraculous, <laughs> miraculous to happen. We're going with it. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Cartoons. I've been there, and it's so hard, and it's terrifying. But God will provide. He'll provide maybe in ways that are different. Perhaps his provision is me being comfortable in uncomfortableness. That's happened, right? Being, being placated in places that are uncomfortable and unjust and full of briars and bristles and finding peace there. That's provision. Trusting in his promises. Instead of storing up my stuff in my nest up here, high above the dangers, I go into the dangers and I look for them. What's, you know what is fascinating to me is the early Christians. You know how they got a good name? Because they would go into plague-filled cities and care for babies of dead parents, knowing that they were probably going to catch the thing that killed their parents and die. That's what they were known for. That is what they were known for. That's the doing the opposite, right? Like, not woe to them, but blessed be them. It's like a reverse beatitudes, if you will. They looked for people in danger. They stepped into the mess. That's what we're called to do. That's a life of faith. 
Woe to him who builds, blood, uh, builds cities out of bloodshed, right? That whole anger thing. We talked about that. Instead of anger, we pour out love. I think that's probably the hardest thing for Christians to do in our culture. It's so easy to be angry. Because we can, in the moment, just say something on the Internet, and it really doesn't have any ramifications for our daily life. It's like that happened on the Internet. But being loving, pouring out our love on others. being prideful but instead being humble doing everything we can to lift God high and not ourselves to give God the glory in everything and not our own and then lastly to worship the one true God what I love is as, as we finish and the last thing that God says to Habakkuk is that but the Lord is in his holy temple let the whole earth be silent in his presence Let the whole earth be silenced in his presence. He is in his temple. In the midst of the Chaldeans getting ready to destroy an entire nation, he, his response is, well, I'm in the temple. I haven't left. I'm still on the throne. That's our call. That's what it means to live by faith, trusting that God is still on the throne. Yes, storms of life are going to happen. Yes, it's going to feel like some things, like it's going to feel like some days everything's burning to the ground. But God is still on his throne. That's the joy we have. That's the hope that we carry with us. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to worship one last time today. But I want you to carry that thought with you. God's on the throne. In the midst of whatever worry, whatever concern, whatever joy, and whatever happiness. I mean, we just had a whole Sunday of celebration. And guess what? God was on the throne that day. And it was terrifying because we thought we might get rained out but guess what god was on the throne and if we had gotten rained on we would have still baptized people because god's on the throne he decided he wanted to show off a little bit but there's a reality there that every day god still remains on the throne and so in our weakest moments in our saddest times and the in the moments where those lies that we feel like they're going to overwhelm us god is still on the throne here's my encouragement for you today don't just live the sermon out in the middle of your Christian stuff. Right? Don't, don't just be like, this is my time for worship, and then I have six more days of stuff to do. Take it with you. Preach that sermon through the way you live your life out there. Worship God out there just like you do in here. Maybe it's not in a room with our hands up and you know us all singing with the guitar music in the background, but man, God's love should be evident. It should be pouring out of you. It should be emanating. You should stink like Jesus. I always love that, though, right? Like, we've all been in a room where it's palatable, right? You walk in, and you're like, whoo, we have a teenage son. It's starting to get that way. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like, I want people to recognize that, man, like, something's different about him. Like, it's just emanating off of him. So let's bow our heads. <laughs>